Well, good evening, and welcome to our service this evening, and to actually what's the tenth sermon in this series in Hebrews, as we come to Hebrews chapter 12. And this evening, we're going to look at role models. And what is a role model? It's someone that we look up to, someone whose values we, we appreciate, someone we think's worth copying, someone who can inspire us to greater things, somebody who, from whom we want to learn. We hear a lot about them, don't we? Role models, we all have them, had them, some good, some bad. A child copies mum and dad. An adolescent perhaps copies a favourite teacher or youth leader, sports or music star. As adults, we often look up to people whose achievements we'd like to copy. Well, they've been around for a long time. And last time we, we met together to look at Hebrews, back in January, we looked at chapter 11, which is absolutely packed full of role models, a long list of people from the Old Testament period who had served God and who were worth looking up to. So, it's a right to take us from here. And who do you look up to? Well, as we start, let's ask God to help us through this chapter of this study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for the role models that you've put before us in chapter 11 of Hebrews. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to see what we should be doing as we seek to follow in the examples before us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot that we can learn from this letter to the Hebrews, but it was first written to Jews who had become Christians, but now they were beginning to question their decision. Had they made the right choice? And the letter to the Hebrews is all about staying with Jesus and why. And the message today is persevere. Back in chapter 10, we were encouraged to persevere in the faith. In chapter 10, verse 23, we read, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Well, now our writer presses the point further with a two-pronged argument. Others have shown the way. Past role models have been good. But Jesus is even better. Our writer challenges us, just as he challenged his original writers, to keep on following Jesus, who's the supreme example of faithfulness. Let's imitate him. So our, right, our chapter 12 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. This long list of followers of God, role models, 
show that God blesses the life of faith. And a race is a metaphor for the race that God has put before us. Paul picks up the same idea in 1 Corinthians when he says, don't you realise that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Don't get tripped up along the way. Don't get tripped up and entangled by sin. An athlete is going to get rid of any extra weight that's going to slow him down, trip him up. Sin is that extra weight in our lives, entangles us, restricts us from moving by faith. Christians have a greater incentive and a greater encouragement than the Jews in the Old Testament, than those we read about in chapter 11. But we also have a race to run. So don't trip up. Sin trips us up. Sin's a bit of a forgotten word, don't you think? And sometimes we think some sins are a bit less important than others. Some sins can be regarded as oh, respectable sins. We tend to sometimes categorise sins as though some are worse than others. Did you read the book of the month? I think it was back in March. Respectable sins. Each chapter, well there's 14 chapters in this book of respectable sins, each dealing with a different aspect of things which even we as Christians might think we can get away with. They're not that bad. If you haven't read the book, I recommend it. Ungodliness is one. Un ungodliness in a Christian. Well, we can live sometimes with not much thought about God in our daily lives for his will. Oh, we come together on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning Yes, that's fine, but how do we live the rest of the week? Could we be guilty of ungodliness? Where does God fit into your daily life? Anxiety. Last week, Brad encouraged us from Psalm 62 about waiting upon God. In chapter 62, Verse, uh, chapter 62, verse 5, Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him, trusting in God. Anxiety is the opposite of trusting God, a fear of the future. Do you really trust God? And then there's unthankfulness. Luke records an occasion when Jesus healed ten lepers and they all ran off to present themselves to the priests to show that they'd been healed but one of them turned around and came back again and Jesus asked didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? He was a Samaritan. And yet he came back thankful. 
Are we thankful for all that God has done to us? Or are we guilty of this sin of unthankfulness? There's pride. Pride comes in a lot of different forms. There's a moral self-righteousness. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story, a parable. He told a story about two men who went to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. And he got up in the temple and told God of God what a wonderful fellow he was and how lucky God was to have him on his side. Ah, yes, just look at me. The other one was a tax collector who simply fell face down on the ground and begged God's forgiveness for his sin. Jesus' comment on that, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride comes before a fall, as we're told in the book of Proverbs. And there's speech. How do we use our tongues? James warns us very much about the danger of the tongue. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. How do we use our tongues? Graham's already had given us a little bit of a taster on this one during the questions. But do you think before you speak? Then worldliness. James again wrote, You adulterers, don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world... You make yourself an enemy of God. How easy is it for us to adopt the ways of the world? We're just like everybody else. Does your life show your faith in your day-to-day -day living? That's just a few of the things, the respectable sins that this book draws to our attention. There's a whole lot more. I haven't got time to go through them all, but selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy. As I said earlier, read the book. It's well worth it. But all of these things can easily trip us up if we allow them to take part in our lives. So, perseverance, how can we persevere? Our writer goes on. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honour beside God's throne. Jesus is that supreme example of faithful endurance. 
If we are to endure, if we are to persevere, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Stay focused on him and all that he's done for us. And why did Jesus persevere in this way? Because of the joy that was set before him, disregarding its shame. Crucifixion was the most shameful form of execution. It was designed to humiliate, to torture. It was reserved for criminals who were not Roman citizens. It was the worst form of death. Christ treated this shame as if it were nothing because of the joy that was set before him, seated at the place of honour at God, the right hand of God. How do we persevere? Keep our eyes on Jesus. Well, his example is there before us. As we continue reading from this chapter, our writer says, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. The first readers of this letter had become tired. They'd become weary. They were thinking of giving up because of the persecution they were facing. The key to their endurance had to be to focus on Jesus, who had been through far worse than they were facing. The, the community had not yet faced martyrdom for their faith. They had suffered, but were they going to give up? Well, our writer's saying, if Jesus could endure a shameful death, his followers should be able to endure something less than that. Then we turn to God's discipline. God's discipline shows his love. Our writer looks at persecution as God's discipline of his people. He writes, and have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each person he accepts as his child. God can turn life's problems to our good training us in righteousness and holy character. And continuing to read on, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Discipline is a necessary and healthy and important component of preparing a child for adulthood. And God's discipline shows that we belong to his family. A lack of fatherly discipline, or in this case, a lack of hardships in life, 
is a mark of illegitimacy, not a blessing. A wise and loving parent gives boundaries and correction, just as God does. And since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? Well, we should respect the parental discipline, but we should submit even more to the discipline of God himself, our heavenly Father. We should trust God as a good Father, trusting that he's helping us to grow even through painful circumstances and live forever or in some translations really live we read on for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening it's painful, but afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Get a grip and grow, he says. And then, live at peace. It, the writer challenges his hearers to endure in following Jesus by living at peace with others. Work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. To see the Lord, he says, is a blessing that's only for those who are holy in their heart and life. Grace is available to all. But only those who see those only those who are holy will see the see the Lord. So we're encouraged to care for one another. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Sin needs to be nipped in the bud. And make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright for, as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance even though he begged with bitter tears. Esau, of course, and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac, grandsons of Abraham. And you may remember the story from Genesis, how Esau, the firstborn, came home hungry and sold his birthright as the first son to his brother Jacob. And for that, he was condemned essentially. Moving on, we have a contrast of two mountains. Seems a bit strange perhaps in the middle of this story, but 
we learn about two mountains. Our writer says, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. He's referring back to the time when after Israel, the nation, had been brought out of slavery from Egypt, led out by Moses, and led through the desert to the Mount of Sinai, God met with them on that mountain. And it was a scary time. We read in Exodus, On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because of the Lord, because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. That was Sinai. That was scary. That was terrifying to the people as they stood at the foot of the mountain and saw this taking place. That was Sinai. That was the past. Now things have changed. Our writer goes on, No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. Zion, Mount Zion was one of the mountains in Jerusalem, and it became a synonym for Jerusalem itself, and it became a great place of expectation of good relationship with God. Sinai brought fear, but Zion brings joy. We read on, you've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. What a contrast. The old covenant, scary and frightening. The new covenant, beautiful relational, welcoming, a celebration. God's people are still heading to Zion, to this heavenly Jerusalem. We're on our way there now. And yet, through our union with Jesus, we've arrived there in spirit. The living God to whom we come is our refuge and strength. 
But we have a warning. More is expected of those who have received more. We read, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger. We will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Jesus gave a similar message when he said in chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. The message is, if Israel was punished for ignoring Moses, what can we expect if we ignore Jesus? When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. The earth shook at Sinai. The earth shook at Calvary when Jesus breathed his last. The earth shook when Jesus left his tomb. The earth shook when the Holy Spirit came down on God's people at the day of Pentecost. Moments of great works of God throughout the scriptures, we see this shaking taking place. And now all of creation is going to be shaken and removed at the judgment at the end of the age. This world as we know it is soon going to pass away. I'm looking forward to hearing what Jacob has got to tell us over the next three weeks from from uh, two Peters, he brings us a, a series of sermons. But just on P 2 Peter chapter 3, we read that the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. How's the world going to end? Read the book of the month, this month. How will the world end? It's quite a short book, doesn't take long to read, but it's a, good, it's a good read and it will help us to help you to understand just what is ahead and what the scriptures say and tell us about it. Our writer goes on, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. Another warning, don't fall under God's judgment. Why? Because our God is a devouring fire. God deserves our holy fear and awe. So, don't get tripped up but keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for that example that we have before us of Jesus and of the challenge that we have to follow him with faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to look to him and to be faithful in our lives and not to be tripped up by the sins that so easily come upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name.